This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the 18th episode of the World Beyond War podcast. This is a very significant episode and one we wish we didn't have to do. On the morning of September 6, 2020, activist Kevin Zeese died suddenly and unexpectedly, probably from a heart attack. Kevin was a familiar presence at World Beyond War as an active member of our advisory board, and he was also active in so many other ways, especially on behalf of Popular Resistance, which he ran with his life partner, Margaret Flowers. Kevin's loss is widely felt, especially because he was so engaged with many groups and organizations that now have to go on without him. World Beyond War is one of the organizations that feels this loss. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, Technology Director of World Beyond War, and I'm really honored to be joined here by Margaret Flowers, one half of the team informally known as Kevin and Margaret, who, along with Kevin's two sons and family, is feeling his loss most of all. We're also joined by a few of the World Beyond War principals who knew Kevin well, our co-founder and executive director, David Swanson, our co-founder and board president, Leah Bolger, and Pat Elder, who challenged Steny Hoyer in 2018 as the Green Party candidate for Congress and runs militarypoisons.org, which is blowing the whistle on deadly pollution from military bases. A week ago, Margaret hosted a very moving three-hour Zoom tribute to Kevin Zeiss, which can be watched by anyone who'd like to know about all of his work. Here, we want to focus on Kevin's anti-war activism. Margaret, I first want to just say hello to you, and thank you for being here. Thank you. It's, um, I really appreciate you allowing me to be here, and it's good to be with everyone today. Kevin was involved in many different causes. How did global issues and peace activism fit into his overall life's work? Well, Kevin was always about connecting issues and uh, exposing the truth and building a broader movement. And so I think, you know, coming out of fighting the war on drugs and racism and mass incarceration, you know, and now we see so clearly how that's linked to militarism and the way the United States wages its foreign policy around the world. I think it was just a natural progression. And I think he really got started. Um, you know, with the the Iraq War, and um, you know, and also running against Ben Cardin when he there was an open seat for Senate, and Ben Cardin was pretending to be this peace candidate, and Kevin just felt like that had to be challenged, and so he ran for U.S. Senate to you know against him. What year was that when he ran? That was 2006, and he was really involved, and I'm sure many of you were um, really involved in trying to push Congress at that time to defund the wars. Mm -hmm. Well, how did each of you first encounter Kevin? And what stories can you share about your interactions with him, especially as part of World Beyond War? David Swanson. I can't say what was the first time I met Kevin. It's like he's always been there. And I think for years, I'm going to keep thinking he's there and I can email him and ask him something. Uh, I I, I know it, it had to have been around uh, the early years of the war on Iraq, and he was very much there and present and engaged in terms of researching and writing about it and in terms of activism and organizing from at least 2005 uh, until 2020, he was the guy you could contact and ask about D.C. area activism, about congressional lobbying and activism. He was someone who practiced activism, who engaged in it, took every risk, did every organizing approach, and studied it and could tell you about what worked and what didn't. And he he was, as Margaret said, very much involved in connecting issues and and in connecting people. You know, I never agreed with Kevin on on everything, uh often because I was wrong. Uh and and <laughs> and, and he but he he both knew that building movements was vastly more important than elections, even though he knew elections were important enough even to take part in them, as Margaret just said. But he also knew how to work with people who agreed on one thing and disagreed on some other thing, even while never abandoning the cause of persuading them, uh, you know, of what he thought was right. Um, and so he he was, you know, he was just a constant presence in the movement 
for peace at the same time as, you know, a leading presence together with Margaret on many of these issues on corporate trade, on drug legalization, on environment, on net neutrality, on whistleblowers, on supporting people like Manning and Assange, on connecting with Latin America, on election reform as well as participation, on media reform as well as participation, creating popular resistance and other media, as well as, you know, the third in the, the, the three parts of the media problem, pitching pitching stories to the corporate media. Um, and, and he and, and Margaret were wonderful at playing up victories to build the movement, not, not falsely, not exaggerating, but the, you know, there are never, there are always plenty of stories when we get defeated. Uh, and you go to popular resistance and there's always the stories of what's been accomplished, which people, I don't think Kevin needed that. I mean, this is a good question for Margaret. I don't think Kevin ever would have burned out uh, if he were with us another hundred years, do you? But he knew that other people needed to hear about those those victories. So, uh, you know, quite apart from him being probably our best advisory board member on World Beyond War in terms of actually giving us advice, he was just there to give everybody advice on on all of these issues and movement building. Uh, and it's kind of hard to remember when he wasn't. Yeah, if I could just say in answer to David, Kevin loved what he was doing. This is Margaret. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and would often say, I can't believe I've gotten away with this all my life to be able to do what, what I love. And when I would say, you know, do you ever want to retire from this? And he's like, no, why would I do that? You know, he just, um, he, he couldn't see a cause and not take it on or, you know, a person who needed to be lifted up and support them. It's just who he was. And David, you you know, I think you also alluded to just the positivity that popular resistance tried to bring and still tries to bring. I guess that is a key characteristic of Kevin to find ways to frame what we're all doing in a positive way. And and not, let's say, by finding something positive, if it could be done, that you could say about Joe Biden and playing that up and downplaying all the negatives, you know, but finding victories that w- were won in the right way for the right causes and pushing for more and escalating. And remember our no to NATO events, it was it was Margaret and Kevin who who upped the the action there and got people sitting in the streets, you know, and he was he was ready to to push harder, to take more risks, never to compromise, but to sit down and talk with with anybody, even you know, the the police who are trying to evict us from Freedom Plaza or whoever. Leah, how did Kevin become part of World Beyond War? I'm not sure if you're the one who would answer that one. Um, well, I can give it a try. Um, <laughs> I, I think the first time I met Kevin uh, was at a presentation in D.C., and I want to say it was at a university, maybe American University, and it was an interview uh, with Mozambique, who is a U.K. citizen who was swept up by the United States uh, in Afghanistan and sent to Guantanamo Bay. And he was kept there for three years before finally uh, he was, the United States released him to his own country in UK. And it was, um, I I don't know if Kevin was part of the organizing that, maybe Margaret knows that, but I remember Knowing his name, his reputation preceded him. And when I when I saw that he was there, somebody said, oh, that's Kevin Zeese. I said, oh, my gosh, there he is. And I, I thought he was kind of like, a you know, an activist celebrity. Was, this was sort of when I was just getting started with activism. And, and but I, I knew of him. I'm not sure exactly how I knew of him, but but I did. Um, and I also, uh, I was very involved with, with, uh, with Kevin and Margaret and another team of people, uh, you know, I, Pat and David were involved as well, um, in, um, the, uh, Freedom Plaza occupation. And that was 2011. So that was a good bit later. Um, but I'm, I was also very involved with Veterans for Peace and Kevin ha- has been a, a friend to Veterans for Peace, uh, as well. Um, and he's just, you know, he's, He's like a natural leader. I think people are drawn to him. He's, you know, he's, he's friendly. He's a, he's a big guy. And, and, you know, people just, I think felt comfortable around him, safe around him. Uh, just you know, his sense of humor. 
and making people feel welcome, as, as you've already mentioned, you know, making people feel like they're a part of it and their opinion is, is, is just as important as, as his and, uh, and others. And uh, he was just such a great guy. We just miss him so much. Thank you, Leah. Now I'd like to ask Pat the same question. Well, I can't remember, like like David, exactly when I met Kevin, but I, I think it was probably in 01 um, or early 02, and it was likely in front of the White House. You know, I got to know him, you know, from that period and, you know, certainly by 04 when I think he was working for, uh, you know, Nader's campaign and and, you know, when I really tried to, you know, put all this together, it's so difficult, you know. Um, but I remember that the, the um, first two impressions, you know, that Kevin had on me. And one was was that he, um, you know, he taught me that the Democratic Party was corrupt. Um, and, you know, I had always held out hope, um, you know. And and so it's just something that um, he, he opened my eyes to, but through the prism of drug policy, you know. So that, those were the first two things I thought about, um, you know, those first couple of years that I knew him uh, because I knew he had, you know, some drug policy, uh, you know, experience. And then, um, you know, I, I remember a conversation we had and, you know, it's like I don't even remember where we were, you know, that the Democratic Party is corrupt and that it is it is insidious capitalist um, that the entire campaign finance system is completely uh, corrupt and that uh, it needs to be destroyed. <laughs> and um, so th- those were the first two impressions that I had of Kevin. And, um, you know, that second regarding the Democratic Party, it was always seemed to be part of the deal. And, you know, I worked with him um, and with Linda uh, on Voters for Peace. I was actually paid staff there for a good part of a year. And, you know, I, I um, you know, Voters for Peace was a brilliant idea. Um, Kevin launched it or uh, the two of them. And, and, you know, the gist was that we really can't have a lot of hope in the Democratic Party to come up with solutions that uh, will end war. So, I mean, th- th- those are my earliest recollections of Kevin. Thanks, Mark. A major question I want to ask, and coming from me as somebody who really became more involved in the anti-war cause later in life. It's interesting for me that, you know, learning about Kevin's biography is actually not that different from my own. We're both from Queens. We're both Mets fans. Um, And, you know, I'm actually, although I do not have a law degree and Kevin was notably a lawyer, I'm curious what what it is that made him choose this path so early in life. And I, I doubt that any of us knew him that early in life. But I'd like to ask this question. What made Kevin the person he is? What what were the special characteristics that led him to devote his entire life to causes and to work so tirelessly? Yeah, well, you know, Kevin and I talked a lot. We were best friends. And uh, I think part of it is he grew up in a household where his father was a, a public school teacher who was really instrumental in developing the concept of special education and worked with special needs students, very caring individual. His mother was a nurse, also a very caring individual. It was a political family. They talked about issues. He remembered, you know, growing up during the civil rights movement and hearing about that at the dinner table. And then, you know, so he got involved early as a high school student. He was working on political campaigns. He was protesting the Vietnam War. And then in college, he was really inspired he was studying political science and uh, William Kunstler and Ramsey Clark came and spoke at his school. And that was a big moment for him. He got involved in anti-racist protests. He went to Boston for one where he was beaten by police on horseback. Mm-hmm. And then um, that, I think, inspired him to go to law school at George Washington University. He took a class on legal activism, which was his favorite class, and he and his team of students did amazing work that semester and, you know, really saw the power of legal activism. And then his first internship was with Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. And um, he was his job was to answer prisoner letters. So that also was really moving for him to see how the drug war was destroying people and their families. And so I think just all of these experiences, plus just 
you know, who he was at heart, a caring individual, giving person who really didn't need attention to himself or even have much attachment to material goods. He was never in it for the money. Um, but he just, that was naturally, you know, who he was. And actually his sister talked about how from a young age, he was organizing everybody and, you know, empowering everybody in their little, you know, group of, of friends. Wow. I w- actually wanted to ask you, Margaret, about him being beaten by police in Boston. We heard about that in the Zoom tribute as well. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little more about that. Certainly seems irrelevant today. And that, uh, what you just said is that that led him to make the decision to go to law school. Can you fill well, in I think little- it was a contributing factor, just seeing, you know, just ex- seeing firsthand, experiencing firsthand what other people are you know experiencing he went to that march too he volunteered to be like a a marshal and you know be on the side of the march and you know kind of protect the people that were marching and the police came on horseback and just started you know beating everybody Mm -hmm. um but i think it was really the you know meeting william kunstler and ramsey clark that inspired him to go to Mm -hmm. law school I also wanted to mention, Margaret, that the way we're describing Kevin is as um, such a tireless activist, the, the same is true of you. And as Kevin is a lawyer, you are a doctor or a pediatrician. So I actually want to open up this question to everybody here, and, and not just in terms of Kevin, but also really in terms of, of anyone who manages to become a productive activist, somebody, you know, and I think that absolutely describes all four of you here. And I'm honored to talk to all four of you for this reason. So I'd really like to just ask each of you to talk about what what you think drove Kevin and in general, what drives all of us? Well, I don't know if I can speak to what drives what drove Kevin as well as Margaret just has. Um, but I, I think that he had in common with many of us in the movements for peace and justice, uh, a desire to make the world a better place. Uh, and the, the notion that that was just simple, basic moral behavior. You try to to rid the world of the very worst, unnecessary horrors uh, and replace them with better things. Uh, and and as most activists know who engage in that sort of pursuit in, a, in the right sort of way, it, it's very fulfilling. Uh, you're, you're working together with people in solidarity, in Kevin's case with his, with his partner in his house as well, uh, in solidarity for a good cause. And you have victories and you make sure people hear about them and you have failures and you keep pushing forward. And because he'd been doing it uh, for so long, longer than uh, most of the rest of us had been doing it he was he wasn't despairing he was knowing he 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 was he was aware of what we're going up against so there wasn't the sort of delusion uh that some political figure or some action was going to quickly solve all problems by next tuesday and if it didn't it was time for depression and withdrawal you know he he was he was in it for the long run, because it was what you do without any sort of notion that someday we'll be finished, you know, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous, uh, but with the desire to keep doing it and do it as well and as strategically and aimed at as big and quick successes as possible. But you just keep doing it because there's always going to be a need for more successes. And and, and I mean, he was years ahead. He was years ahead of most people in the United States of America. If 10 years from now, some young person picked up Kevin Zeese's platform program agenda for what to work on and hundreds of others did uh, you know we would we would just have a assuming we make it to 10 years from now we we would have just a, a wonderful world i mean i i read the new york times yesterday uh nicholas Kristof has come to the conclusion that with someone like trump in the white house what you need is people out there mocking him and making fun of him and making puppets and dolls and inflatable trumps and 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 this is what it's come to no, this is what it had come to decades ago. This is what Kevin and the rest of us were doing with Bush. And I'm sure this would, you know, shock Kristoff out of his mind, but with St. Barack as well. You know, this is, it, 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 there's always this couple of regimes behind the times. Uh, Kevin wasn't, you know, he was a, a couple of decades ahead uh, on everything. Um, and, and together with Margaret, it wasn't just a lawyer and doctor team, but 
uh, all sorts of uh, creative activism team. You could send Margaret your amateur lyrics for a song and she'd send you back a video of her playing it and singing it, you know, and, and strata and, and to have someone on our advisory board who was thinking of creative artistic strategies for how do we how do we mock the, the, this power how do we uh bring a, a wider chunk of the population on board with us with the right messages and the right approaches um you know that's that that's what was so so badly needed Wow, great answer! I, I I really liked it that you you started by talking about just the, the desire to help people and to help the world. And you know, David, when you s- describe it that way, it's almost like why aren't more people doing this? Because it seems like seems like an obvious life choice to make, and yet so few people make it. Well, Margaret's um, a doctor. Ask her, but I'm I understand, and it's good for your health. I don't know why people why more people aren't doing it. It's a mystery to me. Definitely agreed. Well, I think we all have had interesting journeys to anti-war activism and activism here. Leah Bolger is a career Navy officer. I'm not sure if I used the right words there, Leah. Yeah, this is a question that, that uh, I, I refer to frequently when I speak to people because they think, oh, how did you turn from a warrior, quote, warrior into a peacenik? And you know, my role, my way to get into activism was uh, completely after I got um, out of the military. I retired in 2000. And I, uh, I, I think just became more in tune with, um, with reality and, and understanding foreign policy and politics and things in a way I'd never really thought of before. And and then once you get involved, um, you it's it's hard to get out of. If you if you're a sentient being and and you and you have any compassion, and you you you, it's hard to say, oh well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I've got other things to do. Um, and and like David says, it and Kevin says, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do. It's just, of course you want to end war or you want to uh, get health care for everybody or you want to save the environment or, you know, there's so many things to work on that it's hard for me to understand people uh, who I like and I care about. And I think they're smart people who just have no, uh, no motivation to try to make things any better in the world. And they're, and they're just, you know, and there's more, you know, obviously more people like, like that, but, um, I often, I, you know, I tell people, I, I sort of vacillate wildly between one day thinking, yes, we are going to end war. We've got it. I know we're on the right track. It's going to happen. And, and then saying, oh, there's no, there's no way we're going to end war. <laughs> and wanting to just give up. This is too big a problem. And as we've alluded to, you know, Kevin was like, yeah, keep your eyes on the prize. There's, there's always something positive to to find out, to to look towards, and uh, I, I don't always have that optimistic feeling. One thing I will say though is that I often also tell people that I feel quite lucky that because I spent 20 years in the military, I have a pension, and I can afford to be a full time volunteer activist, and. I, when I met Kevin and Margaret, first of all, I didn't realize they were together. I just thought they were both activists that were part of the team that we were planning uh, Freedom Plaza act, actions. But um, I, I thought, well, I knew Kevin was a lawyer and Margaret was a doctor. And I thought, how do they earn a living? They're doing this activist work. Uh, and, and I know that doesn't pay very well. So I, I always wondered um, how, you know, I, they were too early, too young to be retired to have a pension. I thought, so anyway, make, maybe you can explain that, Margaret. I don't know. <laughs> did you inherit a lot of money? How did you guys? How did you guys cope with that? Oh no, we definitely didn't inherit a lot of money. <laughs> but you know, when you start doing things, that attracts people to donate, and and so you know, we were just really fortunate that you know there were people that were willing to to donate to the work we were doing, and so we were able to you know you know, basically live. We weren't and aren't wealthy. Kevin didn't leave behind much, but you know, he, he just was like, and he was amazed too. It was like, I can't believe that I've been able to, mm-hmm. to do this all my uh-huh. life. 
in a way, Margaret, is it that you both learned how to do fundraising in order to, on behalf of your activities? Well, Kevin had had to do a lot of fundraising. And there were people that definitely, you know, were drawn to support his work because he was so good at it and so effective. And, you know, his you were asking about, you know, like what motivated him or kept him going. And he had the privilege of being able to see the fruits of some of his labor through the drug war. You know, he started that fighting that in 1980 when it was the drug war was very popular and he was getting death threats. He was going against public opinion by saying we should end the drug war when people were saying just say no. And, you know, and, and he created the Drug Policy Foundation after normal. And, you know, that was big. And then he built the Alliance of Reform Organizations, which was even bigger. And he just kept doing these big amazing things. And, um, and he had done, you know, he just, he was always raising money for people. He raised a lot of the money for Chelsea Manning's defense. Um, mm. So many people have reached out to me and, and been like, oh yeah, I wanted to do this. And Kevin helped me raise the money. So, wow. yeah. I did not know that about Chelsea Manning. That's great. Pat, you, now your journey to activism, I believe you were a, a teacher. Well, I, I think as activists generally, um, we, we have a tendency to spend too much time defining the problem. And, you know, Kevin was a wizard, you know, he was um, a brilliant intellect and he spent his time defining solutions. And, um, you know, he attracted uh, some funders uh, who realized his brilliance and sent him checks. Um, and so I, I think that is a great testament to Kevin Zeese. I mean, that goes back, you know, I know, you know, to um, the the uh, Nader Voters for Peace era in his life. Um, and, you know, he, he um, just always had enthusiasm. And um, he, you look at his, his record and look at <laughs> all of the groups the guy started. And, and, you know, what the missions were for each uh, and how they carry on in some way, shape or form today. He didn't spend as much time, you know, trying to lay it out as he did, um, you know, trying to identify, uh, you know, steps to solving some of the most pressing uh, problems. Um, I remember, too, like with the um, he worked for Nader and, you know, Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, you know, he tried to get ballot access in all these different states. And, uh, you know, he he just was blown away uh, or maybe he wasn't blown away. I was for sure. Just how closed the system, this duopoly is. He opened my eyes to that. Like it wasn't apparent to me. I, I mean, I, I kind of known it at one level, but when I would hear him talk about how in you know it's different states, uh, you know would uh, uh, you know play play it almost impossible to to get a third party, uh, you know that would challenge this duopoly. And I remember too. I mean, the, the, this is a theme in the guy's life, uh, at least over what 15, 16 years. I remember too. And and Margaret, you could speak to this because, and I forget it was. I forget if it was if it was Kevin's campaign or your campaign, Margaret, when you all were um, on the stage and uh, you were being, uh, you know, told that you weren't allowed to debate and you went up on the stage. Now, was it you that went up on the stage or was it Kevin that went up on the stage? How did that transpire? But <laughs> yeah, man, you know, it's like, God, that's so cool. That was my campaign for U.S. Senate in 2016, also running on the Green Party ticket. And um, there was a, a, a public televised debate going on at the University of Baltimore, a public university and run by the Center for Public Policy and League of Women Voters and some media outlets. And I had been pushing them for months to include me. In fact, they had invited me initially and I met all their criteria. And then they decided to postpone their decision about who was included and uh, by that time, someone had done a poll and I didn't meet their polling uh, criteria, but I met all the other criteria. So I was like, this is not fair. I'm on the ballot. You should include me. And they refused. So Kevin came up with this idea that he would sit in the middle of a row in the in this auditorium and I would sit somewhere else on an edge aisle seat. 
And we had already gotten both candidates, the Republican and Democrat, to, to say on video that they were willing to debate me. And so as they were starting, he stood up and he said, wait a second, you know, the somebody's not being included. And, you know, Senator or, or con uh, whatever, Assemblywoman Kathy Shalega, do you agree to debate Margaret Flowers? And she said, yes, I've always said I would debate her. And then he turned to and, you know, Congressman Van Hollen, are you willing to debate Margaret Flowers? And he said, yes, I said I would. And so I, <laughs> I got up and I walked down the aisle as the police were all heading to Kevin and trying to clear out his aisle so they could remove him. I just walked straight down and right onto the stage. And so um, that got a lot of attention. Actually, after that, people would see me in the street and they were like, oh, you were the one that got on the stage. <laughs> but he was really good. He was great at, at masterminding, you know, how we were going to do this and how we were going to make it work. And, and he was a great, uh, he, he put himself out there. I mean, how many times did he get dragged out of places? You know? <laughs> No wow. kidding. I probably when I first met Kevin, I worked for Acorn and we could have used him uh, strategizing actions. Uh, no question. And, and and you never know the impact. I mean, the fact that they let Lisa Savage in the debates now in, in Maine, uh, you know, who knows the impact of people like you, Margaret, pushing back and demanding to be on the stage. Uh, so they know that that sort of thing might have happened if they hadn't been willing yeah. uh, to let this candidate in. It got attention. I had people that were friends that were living in India who, who wrote me. <laughs> yeah. I think Jill Stein got arrested trying to get into a debate one time. Yeah. too. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. held in a secret site for many hours, handcuffed to a chair. Yes. Wow. What a great story. So this is sort of the flip side to the same question I just asked, sort of the dark side of it. And probably to me, the, the question I most care about, it's where I really most want to learn from people like Kevin and from you, Margaret and David and Leah and Pat, where I want to learn from all of you. How do determined peace activists cope with the constant frustrations, negativity, disappointments that is part of peace activism? You know, Kevin, as we all said, he, he always had a seemed Every time I saw him, he had a smile on his face and always working, always, you know, eye on the prize, as you said, Leah. How did he do that? And I'm going to ask in the same order, <laughs> starting with Margaret. Yeah, well, he was a big picture person. So he knew that there were going to be ups and downs, and but that that was just part of, of how it goes. And, um, you know, we... We talked about the roller coaster. Don't get on the roller coaster. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, just you know, accept what does it. that mean? What does roller coaster? Well, just mean? don't let don't let it impact you. Don't you know? Don't let it you know when things are going down. I guess one thing that Kevin, a philosophy and something he taught his kids, he taught everybody, was that it's so easy in life when something bad happens to get into a negative spiral and then more and more bad things happen. But he said even in the worst situation. You have to look for what the positive is and build on that and get yourself going in a positive spiral. And he had stories he told about, you know, about situations in which things seemed really bad. But then in the, in the long run, they ended up being, you know, turning out well. And it was also, you know, important to kind of take care of yourself and have some, you know, joy in your life. And Kevin has was, was a, has a very had a very artistic eye. He had an appreciation for everything, especially nature. He really loved being out in nature, hiking, kayaking, um, gardening. We, When we would go through some really stressful times, that was probably when we did the most gardening. <laughs> that really seemed to help just wow. being out there. You know, he loved flowers and picking out plants and and he just had, he was really, really good at it. The plants loved him too. So, um, you know, and just, and food, he loved good food. He loved cooking. And so just finding things that, that you love and that build you up, you know, to keep you bolstered through the hard times. Yeah. Well, And we had each other. We were so lucky. Something that really gets me down is if somebody I respect or thought highly of is critical of my positions my political positions. I'm wondering, was there anything that, that got Kevin down? Was there anything that he had trouble keeping his um, focus through? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely, you know, there were times when people would disappoint him, but he always kind of said it is what it is, you know, and 
he also knew that that sometimes he would say things to people because Kevin always told the truth. And even when people didn't want to hear it. And so sometimes people would get angry at him because he said something to them they didn't want to hear. And he would say to me, well, in my experience, in a few years, they may realize that what I told them, you know, was correct. And so hmm. yeah. going for the, the long view. Right. Yes. <laughs> I think that sustains a lot of anti-war activists. <laughs> um, I'd, lo- I'd love to ask David the same question. Well, I have to sort of quarrel with the question, as I usually do, in that I haven't experienced any disappointments or cause for the same. I, you know, I, when I worked for, for ACORN, which I have in mind, because I mentioned it earlier, I, we, we did this campaign against uh, predatory lending from this big bank called HSBC. uh, And, uh, and we, we found, uh, or what was the name? It was, it was, that wasn't the name. It, it was some horrible major bank that uh, that doesn't exist anymore because we put them out of business. Maybe they were bought by HSBC. A- anyway, we 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 t- took you know victims and had them testify before Congress. We went and took over their front lawns in this ritzy neighborhood north of Chicago. We plastered wanted posters all over the neighborhood. We did, did all sorts of media events, uh, lawsuits, state legislation, local legislation. I mean, it was this endless campaign to go after this one bank that was one of the worst at, at ripping off poor people. Uh, and then we won. We won like the biggest settlement uh, apart from the, the cigarette makers, right? And and put the put them out of business, uh, and there I would then I was disappointed. Then I was disappointed because okay, that that well, it's done. What are we going to do? But only for a minute, right? Because there are all these other evil corporations in the world. Uh, but to be disappointed by 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 a failure, no, never. I mean, that's just weird. A failure is an opportunity to keep to keep doing the thing that you enjoy, which is the doing of it, not the, not the ending of it, um, and. So what I what I tell others because it is this endless obsession of everybody else, right? Uh, I don't think of Kevin, and certainly not of me, but of everybody at events or the people who a certain large percentage of people who raise their hands uh, and, and have a little bit of a of a whine in their voice. Is you know what are we what are, how can we carry on when we keep losing? What I usually do is point out to them all the times when we're not losing. Right. Because that seems to be what they need. You know, if you watch this this film that we told everybody to watch a, a week or so ago called We Are Many, you see this big effort to prevent the war on Iraq and it fails and it doesn't prevent the war on Iraq. But to the credit of the, the filmmakers, they do go some do- distance toward explaining that many countries, governments were turned around, that the United Nations was turned around, that the war became a crime and stigmatized uh, and led directly to preventing a massive war on Syria, led to the, the British Parliament voting against a prime minister's demand for war for the first time in centuries, uh, to prevention a couple of times at least, maybe three or four of a war on Iran, uh, thus far, and uh, surprisingly to some people, to the occupation of Tahrir Square in Egypt, right, which the, many of the organizers viewed as an offshoot of a global anti-war movement that they were ashamed uh, to have seen the, the the Western infidels take the lead on. And where were we in Egypt? You know, uh, and so, and of course, if you do educational events especially in person or even Zoom events like World Beyond War does. Ask people where they are at the start. Ask people where they are at the end. And you move all these people toward wanting to abolish war. So if you need encouragement, you know, I tell all the people at the end of such events, look around at everybody raising their hand. Think about that when you have this encouragement deficit. Or, or, if, uh, or, or if you do local events, I mean, if you if you locally try to move your city council to speak against war, I mean, it's, it's as easy as falling out of a chair, at, le- at least, you know, in my city. So so if you're dependent on victories, go local, go global, go educational, do things that have victories, but don't stop doing the things that have have failures, because, you know, that that's that's, that's what we need to be working on. Well, you know, the way you say it, David, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to try to keep that in the back of my head. <laughs> and and Leah, any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, you know, as I as I mentioned, I I have much harder time than than Kevin and and David uh, about staying optimistic. And in that very film that David just mentioned, after it was over, my husband and I said, I didn't think that was uplifting at all. I thought it was really <laughs> discouraging. I mean, millions of people were in the streets, and the Un- United States attacked. And there were no repercussions. We weren't punished. There was no boycott. You know, there were no sanctions. And and so I I'm a, I'm afraid I'm a I'm a glass half empty type of person mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. But I will tell you when it's the most exciting to me to work on these issues is when you are in tandem with a group and it can be fun. Uh, I mean, street actions, direct actions, uh, like Margaret said about getting on stage. There's so many of those things that uh, we did on the the month uh, that we lived on Freedom Plaza in D.C. Every day we do something great and fun, like walking into a Bank of America and uh, kind of distracting people or, or asking that, that you're interested in you know, taking out a loan and somebody else is, is uh, you know, making out a deposit slip. And then all of a sudden we all hold up signs and say, you know, we move the money. Bank of America is corrupt. Your tellers are only making $12 an hour while you're CEO. So, I mean, it was it was fun and empowering. And, and you feel like, yeah, you could you could you could really make make a difference and at least get some attention even if there's not a real tangible change overnight so i think it's important to stay engaged it's really hard to do this work by yourself almost i would say it's impossible to do this work by yourself and i do i do gardening as well so i I do other things when i'm really getting uh, fed up with uh lack of progress that i i want to see on these issues and and Find things that you do have. Uh, you can find incremental victories. There are, you know, milestones that you can meet, and 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 not, you know, not say, oh, well, we have to end war, and then I'll be happy. But but look at the little incremental things about, you know, maybe we we reduce the the budget, or we are we uh, sh- uh, shut down a, a military base, or something that's that's small but but specific that you can feel good about. Um, but, uh, but like I said, I, I, I struggle with this staying optimistic about it. Well, well, thank you for making me not the only one who struggles with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Pat, what about you? Well, I, I mean, I struggle as well. Um, you know, when you feel like, you, you know, you have something that is, um, extraordinarily important and no one seems to pay attention and you really can't nudge, um, policy. But I want to just talk, you know, about uh, one day and then an event uh, that Kevin and I spent a day together um, in um, early 2019. And he was good enough to come down from Baltimore and uh, meet me um, to, um, you know, jointly apply for a permit with the Park Police, you know, for the MLK, no to NATO demonstrations in Washington. And, um, you know, he, he just, you know, I. He's just a calming influence. It's like, you know, I, I remember talking to him and said, Kevin, if you'd just come down here. Uh, yeah, because I'm, I'm more easily rattled, you know. And, and um, so just, just come down. And um, so we sat with the, with the um, Park Service people. And, um, you know, they're just mid-level bureaucrat types. And they promised this and that. And uh, Kevin and I promised the world. And we gave them minimal writing and uh, some plans and you know we walked out and Kevin just said you know it's um not none of this matters the streets are fluid um and uh you know they they're, they're going to say they're going to promise us this and that and they're going to be here and we're going to be there at certain times and none of it matters um and you know i i just signed the permit you know and uh so it it mattered less to Kevin and you know um we had a permit darn it, um, to have our PA system and our microphones and the backdrop was supposed to be MLK, you know, there on the, um, uh, you know, the reflecting, the statue, you know, and, and, you know, um, so we, we get there to set up and the park service 
say you're not allowed to be here. <laughs> and, you know, Kevin just says, hey, you know, this is what I was saying to you. And um, but the way that both of us handled it was, uh, you know, the police cordoned me off. There are three, four cops big. They're always big, you know, and they're like, you got to go. You can't be here. Yeah. And I showed them my little piece of paper that said we can't be here. And they said, no, you have to move your stuff. And, you know, Kevin's there and he's got his arms folded. And um, he said, well, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, this is he's talking to him back and forth, back and forth. And uh, so, you know, the cops left and they, they you know, they're going to get the supervisor. And um, so I just said to Kevin, look, if they if they're looking for me because my name was on it, I, I'm going to take a walk uh, and uh, I'm just going to disappear. And, um, you know, Kevin said, well, suit yourself. Um, and so, you know, they came back, they were looking for me and I, I, you know, we don't even know where he is, you know, and, and, but Kevin's stance was, look, we, we have already started the program by then. And so once the singing started, once the, the program started, Kevin said to the cops, we've already started. You really want us to pull the plug? And he stood him down and, you know, that's Kevin. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, it worked between us, although looking back at it, I'm, I, you know, I don't feel really good about my actions. I wish I had the strength that he had at, at that hmm. time, you know. Yeah. You know, Kevin was really good at <laughs> charming people. And uh, it, he, you know, when he grew up, he was like a rabble rouser from the time he was like three year old, three years old. And he broke a lot of rules in his life. And he was always really good at like getting away with it. So I think he brought that to his police liaisoning as well. He was just, you know, he 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 didn't get defensive. He 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 just, you know, talked to them, and usually he was able to like make it work out that we could do what we wanted to do. I remember when we climbed down the U.S. Trade Representative building right in front of the cops. <laughs> they didn't realize we were protesters. We were dressed like construction workers, and we dropped all these big yeah. banners. And when they finally figured out what was going on, they called, and the Federal Protective Service came zooming up in his car, and he got out, and he was just pissed off, and he was, like, charging out of his car. And, and uh, he went up to Kevin, I'm not going to negotiate with you. And Kevin was like, okay, that's cool. We won't negotiate. I'm just going to tell you what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) And he ended up negotiating uh, that we got down when we finished what we wanted to do with all our stuff and got one person unarrested. So yeah, he just was really good. Yeah. Well, it it brings up Margaret, uh, the, the, uh, later in that day, when we were marching from the State Department to, or no, earlier from the State Department to MLK, and you know the cops were like, "Well, um, you all aren't allowed to take the streets." And and Kevin said, "Okay, you know, well, you know," and we, you know, that was while we were already in the streets. Yes. And we took the streets and marched down to MLK, and. Uh, you know, um, he just had a steady presence, and it felt really good to have him take charge. Mm-hmm. You know, remember that with with World Beyond War, being in the streets like that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just um, I thought it was wonderful. I remember that as well. I actually was was uh, walking alongside him um, at that time, and yeah, it was a powerful thing. Yep. Um, Speaking of um, confrontations in Washington D.C., let's talk about the Venezuela embassy. And, um, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm capable of putting into words what went on there. I'm wondering, possibly Pat or, or somebody could, could put it into words, but I just want to say I, I was only there for a few days. I was outside. Actually, Pat, you and I were on the phone. I was driving down to join all of you inside on the day that it suddenly was locked down and a bunch of counter-protesters arrived from outside. I then turned back home, Pat, because you told me to go back home and then came back a few days later. I have to say it was one of the most surreal, shocking experiences of my life. Mainly what shocked me, maybe it shows that I'm, I'm a newbie, that it took this long in my life to, to have the realization that, that if I were in danger, the police would not be protecting me. Um, to, to have people beating drums trying to harm my ears um, while sitting for hours, luckily with um, earplugs in, it, it was an amazing experience. You know, I, and I kind of regret saying to you, uh, Mark, that you could turn around 
I mean, I think that must have been right that day where we were in and, uh, you know, no one else could come in. I think it was your intention to want to come in. Yes. We certainly could have used the, you know, the sport um, streets. But, man, I, I don't have the medal for that. Uh, you know, I don't have the uh, emotional wherewithal to deal with that kind of pressure. I mean, Kevin did, that's for sure. And, you know, he was undoubtedly, along with Margaret, the leaders. Um, I know, um, I think, you know, initially, at least, you know, Medea played a, a large role. But in terms of the presence and in terms of leadership, it was Kevin, you know. Kevin and Margaret uh, ran that that whole thing. And I, I mean, I my most pleasant memory, uh, you know, where I, have, you know, get a lot of, you know, pride in myself is um, being able to write a couple pieces and, you know, getting a, you know, truth out to do their cover, you know, for the day on, on the embassy taking takeover and shooting some pictures from inside, you know, and, and having that go up while I was there. And that felt really good. But in terms of um, the pressures, in terms of like the psychological warfare, that's what I wrote about, you know, on the one hand, I'm clearly describing what the hell these people were doing to us. But then on the other hand, I was clearly a victim of it. So, um, you know, I uh, I don't know how many, I, I, close to a week, and then I, I, I bailed. And um, I think when I left, Margaret, maybe there were seven left, and then maybe three more left, and then that, that was just the four of you. So, uh but, you know, I have nothing but praise and love for Kevin, um, and, you know, during those times. The guy never raised his voice. The guy would 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 hold, hold the meeting. He sensed people freaking out. He calmed people down. You know, we had group meetings, man, and he was a nurturing, loving human being. So that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, for folks who aren't familiar with it, um, you know, the U.S. has been trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government ever since the Bolivarian Revolution started in 1999. And we were in Venezuela uh, before we were in the embassy. Uh, Kevin had also been in Venezuela in 2018 to cover the presidential election. So he saw how excellent their election system was. And we were on a peace delegation in March. And then while we were down there, um, the U.S., you know, had tried to do a coup back in January, but it failed but the U.S. was doing something new. Even though the coup failed, they were pretending that this guy they wanted to put in power was the president, and they were starting to hand over Venezuela's assets to him, including diplomatic properties. And so two properties were handed over while we were in Venezuela, one in New York and one in D.C. And activists tried to stop it, but they were outside and they, you know, they were too late. They couldn't prevent it. And so when we knew that their diplomats, the OAS diplomats from Venezuela were going to be expelled in late April, we approached the embassy and said, you know, would you allow us to stay inside and see if maybe we can stop them from taking it over that way? And of course, Medea was there right away. And we worked closely with ANSWER. It was kind of our three organizations that were really the organizing bodies of this and, you know, answer and, and code pink, you know, had people inside with us as well as organizing amazing work on the outside once we were cut off. But um, we got a call on April 30th from the Venezuelan folks that there was going to be another coup attempt down there and that they were fine. They could deal with it, but that we should expect these regime change agents to show up these pro coup people and uh, and they did, and they were vile, and they were awful, and they were trying to terrorize us out, and um, and it didn't work. It just strengthened our solidarity with the Venezuelan people to experience the same things that they had been experiencing at the hands of these right wing fascists. So, um, we, yeah, and so we did end up being prosecuted and had a mistrial, and um, are still on probation for a couple more months, but then hopefully it will all be done in December. I, I was wondering about that, Margaret. Are you are you still facing legal legal? Threat? Just have to get through the probation. We have a thirty day suspended sentence uh, hanging over our head, and uh, just a couple more months to go. Great. I also want to ask you, and you alluded to this before. It must have been a wonderful experience to be part of a a couple who ran an organization together. I'm talking about Popular Resistance. You ran a podcast together. You ran, I'm, I'm sure I'm not even mentioning all the different things. Um, did you two 
initially meet over over your common interest in activism or in a different way? Well, Kevin and I met when I was holding a festival at a farm where I lived up in North Baltimore County, uh, kind of trying to get find if there were other progressive people around this very conservative community that was driving me a little crazy. And I invited Kevin to speak because he was doing election integrity work then at Fair Vote, trying to get rid of the um, you know, black box voting machines in Maryland, which succeeded. And uh, I remember our very first encounter, I was in the house getting things ready and he came in and just started like grilling me, like, who are you? And all mm. this, and, and, you know, in a very kind of intense way. And, um, and then we just kind of kept in touch after that. I would ask, you know, email him and ask questions and he was always take the time to respond. And, we, we worked together when he ran for office in 2006. I ran, worked on his campaign and then we worked really closely during the single payer fight in 2009, 2010. And just over those years, you know, those five years developed a really strong friendship. And, um, you know, like everybody, he was somebody that you could turn to for advice and he was always willing to listen and, and to give it. And um, it wasn't until, you know, 2000 late 2010, early 2011, that we decided to, you know, try dating. A, a friend of ours, a mutual friend was like, why don't you date each other? You're like, hmm. both care about each other. And I was like, oh, I don't want to ruin my friendship. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but, but we tried it. And it was just even more amazing that we were so in tune at every level and really function like a team in every aspect of our life. We used to say that every day was Valentine's Day uh-huh. because that's just how it felt. Um, and to find somebody like that is really a gift that many people don't find. So I treasure those 10 years that we lived and worked together, but it was just, um, it was just really nice. It was, it was, uh, you know, we worked hard and we also took time to enjoy things. So yeah, nice. What is the future of the projects you worked on together? I'm thinking of your podcast. Uh, by the way, I do want to mention when when I was first um, when we were first starting this podcast, clearing the fog was was one of those we listened to. And also, popular resistance. The website I think is great. Um, obviously, we we republish a lot of articles from you on World Beyond War. Well, I'm trying to keep it going. You know, it was our work, and um, so. You know, I've got Popular Resistance is still going and I'm still doing the podcast, trying to experiment, you know, with a little bit of different formats to see how that will go. Um, you know, whether I do it solo or or have guest co-hosts or find a permanent co-host. It's really hard to replace Kevin because he had such vast knowledge and, um, you know, was on so many issues and uh, and trying to pick up some of, you know, the positions that he had on various committees, um, you know, to keep that work going as well. But and then the other thing that we started with the family is the Kevin Z Emerging Activist Fund. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that to try to keep his legacy going because he was so he had so many people that he mentored throughout his life. And um, I think it'd be nice to to continue that work. So, you know, the work continues. And he said, find the positive. So I'm trying to find the positive in this and keep that going. For sure. In the Zoom tribute last week, we heard from two sons, Alex and Daniel, very moving. And several family members really had a lot to say. I was pleased when Alex mentioned that Henry David Thoreau was an inspiration for, for Kevin. And also you've, me- you've mentioned nature and gardening, um, which makes me think of Thoreau. But I'd actually like to know from you, Margaret, what were some of the other inspirations that kept him going? And I also especially want to ask, what was the music he would listen to when Mm -hmm. he most needed something to to pick him up? Well, um, he also really loved Thomas Paine and thought Thomas Paine was so ahead of his time. We used to stop sometimes when we were going back and forth to New York City, we'd stop in this little town in New Jersey, Bordenton, and have, you know, lunch or dinner there. And there's a Thomas Paine statue. We would go take hmm. a walk and visit it. And one of Thomas Paine's houses were there. And um, so that was an influence. You know, I think contemporary influence, Ralph Nader was, you know, a huge influence on Kevin, as well as many of the people he worked with throughout his life. And, um, and when, you know, he was close with Chris Hedges and 
Chris covered war-torn countries for 20 years. And he would always say to us that, you know, I would talk to the activists there and they would think, oh, maybe we'll succeed in a year or years. And then overnight things would change. He said, you just never know how close you are. You know, that's mm. why you have to keep fighting because you could just be, you know, so close to victory. So, um, you know, that was an ideology that really kept him going as well. And music, I mean, he was always a Bob Dylan fan. I took him to a Bob Dylan concert for his birthday a few years ago. Um, he liked the traveling blueberries. Oh, and, sweet. Uh, you know, just, yeah, I don't know. It, he enjoyed music, but it wasn't, you know, a huge part. Even though he had been a musician growing up, he was a very talented musician through his teens. Huh. Well, the reason I ask is we always include a song. Um, so Traveling Wilburys might give me an idea. Um, <laughs> well, well, we will miss Kevin and he will not be replaced. Uh, and uh, the more that people can, can go and read what he wrote and watch his videos of what he said, uh, the better. Uh, I, I think there's huge value. Uh, I, I think we may miss him in particular this evening. We have the... The, the wonderful experience of Fox News questioning a pair of senile corporate shills, neither one of which supports Medicare for all or demilitarization or a Green New Deal or, or you know, free college or anything that any of us care about. And tens of millions of good, decent people will be tuning in and hoping for some wonderful news. And uh, we will miss what Kevin would have had to say about media reform, about electoral reform, about each of those issues, you know. Uh, and, uh, yet we can look back and, and see what he said in the past, uh, and, and build on it, um, and try to move forward. I, I would like to thank Margaret for, for opening herself up to letting the world know about intimate and personal relationships she had with, with Kevin and things that only she knows about. And I think that must be very raw for you, Margaret, to so soon after after we've lost him to uh, to be vulnerable in that way and i, I thank you for for sharing um sharing kevin with us yeah thanks margaret it it, it i just have thought of you a hundred times you know in in and I, I just um you know i just wish you strength man and carrying on and I just hope for you know activists especially you know younger um activists tuning in um, you know, let Kevin be an inspiration, you know, let his life be an inspiration, read about, um, his life and, and read uh, the work, um, on popular resistance and, you know, maybe spend a little bit less time, you know, trying to define problems and more time seeking solutions or working with people, um, that are on a path to seeking, um, solutions to ending, you know, um, uh, war and racism and all the problems we face. So thanks, Margaret. I also want to thank you so much for, for you know, just coming on here and, and speaking from the heart. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was great to be with everyone. And uh, we'll continue, right? Yeah. We will. Thank you. Sent
Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war. Not the war. Not the war. Not the war.